We are studying through the book of, uh, through the minor prophets this summer, some of the minor prophets, and this morning we're looking at Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4, till about chapter 3, verse 8. invite you to join me again for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who has spoken to us, that you love us, and Lord, you want us to know your thoughts. And Lord, we pray that as we study Zephaniah this morning, that you would um, meet with your people. God, I pray that this would not be a sermon, but that this would be a conversation between the living God and his people. And Lord, we pray for uh, our brother Godwin as he is up in Vermont preaching right now in Middleton. Lord, we pray that you would bless him as he uh, preaches at Jared Wilson's church. Bless that congregation. And Lord, be with our elder Mark Jennings preaching down in the Cape this morning. God, we pray that uh, as, as our church has the privilege of serving other churches and sending out gospel preachers, Lord, that, that those churches would be strengthened and blessed and encouraged so that they too might send out others. God, we just pray for a multiplication of your gospel ministry all over the South Shore in all kinds of different ways, in pulpits, in Bible studies, in conversations between regular Christians uh, over coffee, Lord. May, may your gospel spread, and may it spread here today. We pray this through Jesus' name. Amen. It's so easy to see the faults of others. And it's so hard, it's so hard to see your own. You know, it it just is that way. I I have a hard time seeing my own or even believing my own are are that serious. Um, Jesus put it this way. He said, "You you know, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you fail to notice the plank in your own eye. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, talked about the fatal character flaw that, that uh, each of us have, and he talked about the fact that, you know, everybody has a fatal character flaw, and, and other people have a fatal character flaw, and you see it, and it gives you despair and frustration, and, and how many times your plans have been ruined because of someone's obvious character flaw. But the thing that C.S. Lewis points out is he says that the key to wisdom is understanding you're exactly the same type of person, and that you give people despair when they think of you. And they think of how their plans are going to be ruined by your obvious character flaw. You know? and, and Lewis goes on to say, it, it's, not, it's not enough to somebody to say, well, I know I have my faults. He's like, no, no, no. You have a really terrible fault that you can't see. And, and even when you do see it, you don't even realize half of what it is. It's so easy to see the faults in others. It's so hard to see them in myself. Or even when I do see them, to not just say, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. At least it's not like that person. Well, here's Zephaniah. He's preaching in the six, mm, 630s, 620s-ish B.C. He's preaching in Jerusalem. And he has this Herculean task of trying to help the Jer- Jerusalemites and the Judeaites see their fault. He's, he's been sent by God to point out to them that there are some major deficiencies in them spiritually. And you know how it is, trying to show someone else 
their faults. I mean, it's a really hard thing to do because we don't see our faults very easily. And so here's Zephaniah, and he's, it's a really critical time. Uh, God's people have been worshiping idols now for a long period of time. There's been a lot of sin that's been institutionalized in Jerusalem. And so here's Zephaniah. He's trying to break the cycle. He's trying to hold the mirror up before God's people. That's a tough task to show others their faults. And, uh, and so he starts off, well, you guys were here last Sunday when Godwin preached chapter 1. Whew, chapter 1, he brings the heat. You know, let's try the direct approach. God is going to judge the world, and you've been worshiping idols, and you've been complacent, and you're on the chopping block. Boom! He just hits them straight on. You know, the second verse of the whole book of Zephaniah starts, I will sweep everything away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Chapter 1 is a really hot chapter. It's a really intense, uh, threatening chapter. And it's true, God's judgment is coming. But apparently, they needed another approach because in chapter 2, verse 4, that we're going to study today, all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, Nehemiah tries a different angle at getting them to see that they had some flaws and faults they needed to address. He, he tries a different approach. So chapter 1 is kind of right between the eyes approach, boom. Chapter 2 is kind of the rope-a-dope. It, it's sort of like, you know, laying a trap you know, luring them in, suckering them in, and then hitting them with it, all right? So, so chapter two, he's trying a different angle. It's more subtle, but it's still the same goal to try to get God's people to see their faults. And so what he does in chapter two, starting in verse four, is he starts off by laying out a number of destruction and judgment prophecies against, here's the key, the other nations around them. Oh, yeah, we love to point out the faults of the other nations, right? So look, look at chapter 2, verse 4. He starts off with the Philistines. The Philistines. Gaza will be abandoned, verse 4, and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Carathite people. The word of the Lord is against you, O Cana, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, and none will be left. The land by the sea where the Carathites dwell will be a place for shepherds and sheep pens. It will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. So if you think of a map of, of Israel, if you think like here's Israel, right? And if you go north, you get into like Turkey. If you go south, you're down into Egypt. And over here is the Mediterranean Sea. Well, well, the Philistines were, were people who lived right along the western coast of Israel. They, they were the people on the, the western neighbors in Israel. And uh, if you know the Bible even a little bit, you know the Philistines are notorious long-term enemies of the people of Israel. I mean, you go back 400 years to the time of David and Goliath, and Goliath was a Philistine champion. Or you go back three, four hundred years before that into the times of the judges. From the very beginning, the Philistines were always harassing and at war with and enemies of Israel. They were sort of the classic arch enemies of God's people. I mean, we even have that term today, right? We talk, oh, that person is such a Philistine. You know, we've been so affected by kind of a Judeo-Christian um, view in our language that that's even become a figure of speech that people will use today. Oh, that guy's a Philistine. You know, he's a bad, uncouth sort of person. And so here's 
Zephaniah preaching against the enemies to the west, the Philistines. And he says in verse 8, God says, I will destroy you and none will be left. You can imagine how the crowds responded to this sermon. Yeah, Zephaniah. That first chapter is a little uncomfortable, but now you're talking. Yeah, Philistines. All right, Zephaniah. Preach against the Philistines because we know they're bad. They've been unjust. They've been evil. They've done all kinds of terrible things to us down through the centuries. It's about time they got theirs, right? And Zephaniah then goes to another prophecy. Now he's going to prophesy against the neighbors to the east, Moab and Ammon. Look at verse 8. I've heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in his own land. So now he he turns from the west to that western people, the Philistines, and he looks to the east. And just on the eastern side of the uh, Jordan River were the Ammonites and the Moabites. Again, classic enemies of Israel, going way back to when Israel first came out of Egypt as slaves and and these peoples were harassing them. They've always been sort of against Israel. And here now God is saying to them, look look what he says. He says, Moab is going to be like who in verse 9? Sodom. And uh, the Ammonites will be like Gomorrah. You don't get a bigger threat than that. I mean, it doesn't get any more intense than saying, I'm going to do to you what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, they just got roasted. The fire fell from heaven. and the, You know, Sodom and Gomorrah is the, the epitome of divine judgment. You, you want a little glimpse of what it'll be like on the last judgment day that Godwin preached about last Sunday? You know, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah except global. And you have the final judgment day. It's a terrifying image. And so here's Zephaniah saying, that's right. You've been arrogant, Moab and Ammon. You've been, you've ridiculed God's people. You've mocked them. You've been cocky and insulting. And therefore, Sodom and Gomorrah time for you. And you can just imagine the the congregations in Jerusalem. Woo! Yeah! Zephaniah! Have you guys been to Zephaniah's church? It's awesome. He preached last Sunday against the Philistines, and this Sunday it was against the Ammonites. He brought the heat, man. You got to come to Zephaniah's church. Next Sunday, sermon against Cush, verse 12. Kind of a short sermon. You too, O Cushites, will be slain by the sword. Who are the Cushites? They were huh? south. They're the, the enemies to the south, the, the people of Egypt. Oh, the Egyptians. They had put the Israelites in slavery. Cushites are bad. It's a kind of a short one. But, you know, hey, we'll take it. We'll take it. Slain by the sword. Okay. That's good. Short and sweet. Good one. What's left? What's left? Ah, the north. 
the north. And who's north? The evil Assyrians. Look at verses 13 to 15. He will stretch out his hands against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate, dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind, the desert owl and the screech owl the, will roost on her columns. Their calls will echo through, echo through the windows. Rubble will be in the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the carefree city that lived in safety, that she said to herself, I am, and there is none beside me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass her by scoff and shake their fists. So now a final prophecy against Nineveh of Assyria. Now we're a little more familiar with Nineveh, right? Because we just studied just recently Jonah. We went through the whole book of Jonah this summer, and we saw that that Jonah's about mm, 150-ish years before Zephaniah. So 150 years earlier, Jonah had gone to the Ninevites with a similar prophecy of destruction. And he said, you know, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. But what happened in Jonah's day? The Ninevites repented. And God relented. And, and the Ninevites said, we're sorry. And God said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare you this time. I'm going to save you from this judgment. But it appears that successive generations of Assyrians in Nineveh failed to remember that story so that by the time Zephaniah has come back, the Assyrians are back to their oppressive, violent, cruel ways. So by the time of Zephaniah's day, Nineveh is back on the chopping block. They're once again, you know, carefree. Verse 15 says it all. They're carefree. They live in safety. No one can touch us. We're unstoppable. We're the Assyrians. I mean, look what she says. I am, and there is none besides me. That's, that's what God says. I am, and there is none beside me. And so now God is bringing his judgment on the Assyrians in the north, on the city of Nineveh, is finally going to get its due. Interestingly, this was prophesied, you know, like I said, maybe 630-ish B.C. 612 B.C., the uh, city of Nineveh was actually sacked by the Babylonians. So this prophecy came to pass pretty quickly after it, it was spoken back in those days. Now what do the people of Israel, or, Judah, or rather Jerusalem, think of Zephaniah? I mean, he's the best preacher in town. Yeah, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Cushites, the Assyrians, north, south, east, and west. He's just dishing out judgment prophecies to all those bad people. All those evil, oppressive, violent, idol-worshiping nations are going down. Isn't it great? Woo, great sermon, Zephaniah. And Zephaniah goes, wait, 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 wait. I got one more. I got one more. Oh, he's got one more. It's an encore. Wow. What is it? Now who's going to get it? Right? Chapter 3. One more prophecy. This one against Jerusalem. The trap is sprung. The city that could see all the flaws and all the other nations and why they should all be judged, that city is now coming under judgment. Judah is, is not exempt from God's assessment. And so we have a very stern prophecy against Jerusalem. Do you see that? It just, it's sort of the, the plot twist, the, the surprise ending to this series of prophecies. 
Philistines, Moab and Ammon, Cush, Assyria, and then Jerusalem? Jerusalem, right along with the rest of them. And so let me read verses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every day, every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have cut off nations and their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left, no one at all. I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. And now we're back to chapter 1. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. So God ends with an indictment against his people. He, he, after he, he gets them cheering against all of the injustices of all the other nations, he then springs the trap and he holds the mirror up to Jerusalem and says, and look who else fits the bill. Let's look just a little more closely at chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, and notice uh, three tragic ironies in these verses. Three tragic ironies. The first irony is this, is that Jerusalem is just as bad as the pagan nations around her. Jerusalem is just as bad. You know, verse 2, really, when I was studying this passage, usually when I'm studying a passage like this, there's a couple verses that really just kind of grab me that, at least for me, I I kind of ruminate on. And I feel like chapter 3, verse 2 caught me that way. Just listen to this description. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. You know, what a succinct picture of, of disregarding God. And yet that's how God's people looked at that time. She obeys no one. She doesn't obey God's laws. She has God's laws. She doesn't keep them. You know, look, look how she is. Verse 1, she's a city of oppressors. You know, pointing the finger at all those other oppressive nations, but you're filled with oppressors. You know, verse 3, your officials are roaring lions. You know, don't, don't get in the way of the rulers. They're like hungry beasts. They chew people up. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant, treacherous men. Prophets are supposed to speak for God, and instead, they're, you know, you can't trust them. They're treacherous. They're arrogant. Listening to those prophets, that's like going up and listening to a cobra trying to get a message. From, you know, it's, ew, it's bad. It's, these are scary people. You, can, you can't trust those people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The priests are the ones who are most supposed to uphold God's holiness and God's laws. And they're the ones who are leading the way in in going against it and breaking it. And so you look at at Jerusalem, you look at Judea, it doesn't look any different from the world. 
You, you, you look at you know, God's people, you look at the world, they look the same. It's not supposed to be that way. God's people are supposed to be a light. You know, one of the things that's supposed to mark us as, as God's people and as his church is we're supposed to look different from the world. You know, sometimes there's this push to make the, the church seem so cool and so much like the world that maybe people will love Jesus if they think Jesus is more like the world. And, and I think actually sometimes it's the opposite. We need to look very different from the world because the world needs to see something different. That we're not just like everything else. That we have a different way about us, a different way of treating each other, a different moral standard. And, and so rather than looking different from the world, Israel had started to look like the world. And, and she disobeyed God's laws. I think that's a challenge for us as God's people today. Do we look different from the world? You, you know, are we out there pointing our fingers at all the worldliness and going, ah, you know, or are we, are we saying, are, are we like the world too? How, how different are we? You know, it's like I, I, I try to teach my kids, like, okay, we don't swear like your friends at school do. We don't cuss, and, and we make sure that they don't, you know, listen to certain explicit lyrics in music or watch certain movies with certain language because we don't want it to sound like the world. You know, but, but am I importing other... Okay, so that my kids don't swear like sailors, okay. But, like, what about materialism? What about narcissism? Have I taught my kids that they're the center of the universe? You know, I mean, worldliness has all kinds of forms beside bad words and music. You know, we, we don't watch reality TV shows sometimes because they're just so trashy. And, you know, you, you're just like, oh, you know, you watch a, one reality TV episode and it reminds you why you don't watch them. And you're just like, this is just so awful. The way these people treat each other and backstab each other. It's just so worldly, you know. But then you've got to step back and say, isn't it true that sometimes local churches can be like bad reality TV shows? Where there's backstabbing and politics and feuds and long-standing faults and divisions between people. You're like, this is just as slimy and gross as TV. And unforgiveness and, and outstanding uh, feuds and bickerings between different camps and gossip and, you know, just like, ugh, ugh. I was happy with the church until I got involved, but once I saw all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, it was like, ugh. You know, and the, church is just, can, the church can be just as worldly as, as the world. We, you know, we're, we're troubled and disturbed at, at this movement in our nation toward uh, legalizing same-sex marriages. And it just seems to be marching along, and we're like, oh, man, God's institution of marriage is just being trampled on. And, and same-sex marriage is against God's law. It, it's not right. It's an oxymoron. But have we already in the church lost ground on that? B- because we've disregarded the sanctity of marriage through no-fault divorce. Have we kind of looked at divorce like, well, it just happens. You know, these things happen. And people go through tough times. Hey, it's all right. You know, you know have, have we taken it seriously? Have we really had our hearts broken over the, the breaking of marriage in all of its forms? You know, or are we, are we sort of picking some versions of it but okaying other versions of it? Have we, do we let the scriptures guide our thinking in all of these things? 
Are we like the world or are we different from the world? To what extent do we just blend right in? I'm not talking necessarily about clothing or what car you drive or what food you eat. I'm talking about our lives, our conduct, the way we treat each other, the, the, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we use and control our bodies, what we do with our money and our time, you know, the spiritual things and how we relate to the Lord. Do we look like the world or are we just as disobedient? Let's go on with verse 2. She does not trust in the Lord. Are we really a people who trust in the Lord? Do we really trust in his word and, and in Christ? Or, or are we just like the world? You, you know, again, Israel could look at all the other nations and say, oh, they trust in all those other gods. Ah, but we trust in the Lord. You know, really? Do we really trust in the Lord? Or could it be that we still trust in everything the world trusts in? Money, accomplishments, our own smarts, our ability to control everything. Do, do we really trust in, you know, all kinds of things that the world trusts in? Or are we really a people who trust in the Lord? When's the last time I prayed? <laughs> and I actually was like, God, I trust you to help me with this situation. You know, God, I ask you to heal me from this situation. And uh, am I trusting in the Lord or am I trusting just in medicine or am I trusting in the wisdom of the world? Even when you take medicine, are you trusting in the Lord? I, I, uh, it, it looks like this week I, uh, it came down with Lyme's disease. So on Sunday I was like in my bed with like fever and, you know, I couldn't get up or anything. And uh, finally got to the doctor and acted all miserable, you know, and... Which I was, but, you know, so it wasn't hard. But, you know, because I didn't have the the tick and I didn't have the ring. So I was like, I hope they don't skimp on the antibiotics on me because I just want to get on with this. And, uh, and so, you know, the lady was like, well, you don't have the tick. You don't have the ring. And so I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, and she's like, but maybe we could do the antibiotics. And I was like, mm-hmm, you know, so... And I got those antibiotics. And, you know, within like three days, you just start picking up, you know, thank God, if it is limes, we got it early, and, you know, I should be fine or whatever, but, uh, but you know, it's, isn't it easy, I, I was just thinking about that, to trust in the antibiotics, to trust in the medicine, I'm not at all saying, don't take your medicine, don't take your antibiotics, but I'm saying, ultimately, doesn't healing come from the Lord, and shouldn't I be trusting in God, and it's so funny how easy it is to, to say, well, where is my trust, really, my trust needs to be in the Lord my God. I need to start with prayer and then take my antibiotics too. But pray and trust him. And how often trials come upon my life and, you know, prayer doesn't happen until three or four days or three or four weeks into the trial because I've been trusting in my friends or my influence or my smarts or my cleverness or whatever. But do I really trust the Lord? And, and one of the ways trust evidences itself is prayer where I just say, God, I need you. You're the one who has to do this. And if I need medication or if I need guidance or if I need money, God, you're the one who has to provide and I trust in you, O Lord. Are we a people who really trust in the Lord or when it comes down to real life, are we just really no different than the world? Are we just like everyone else? And then just one more and then I'll, I'll wrap up with the other two points. But notice that she does not, verse two, does not draw near to her God. Israel was supposed to be God's people, but they didn't draw near to God. They weren't in fellowship with God. This is the best part of being a Christian. It's that we can know God. 
That's the best part of being a Christian is having a, an intimate relationship with God. We can draw near to him. You know, our, our sins have been forgiven. Christ died. He removed the barrier that separated us from God. And we can have an intimate relationship with the Lord. We, we can know him. We can pray. We can study his word. God transforms us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And, and, and so the, the one thing that should mark us as Christians is that we should be a people who can say, yeah, actually, I, I, I know God. Isn't that a crazy statement? I know God. You know, we know him. But, but are we pursuing that relationship? Are we really drawing near to him in prayer? Are, are we drawing near to him with the corporate worship of God's people on Sunday? You know, gathering like this together is one of the, the avenues by which we draw near to the Lord. Are hearts drawing near to him? Do you desire to know God more? If you can't remember the last time you cracked your Bible or prayed or cried out to God, then in what way are you drawing near to the Lord? We need to be a people who are seeking him. In fact, let's even push it a step further. Like, Start by just making sure you're really a Christian. I know. That's the first step in drawing near to the Lord is really being a Christian. You know, are you really a Christian? I, I think there's a problem, at least in American Christianity, certainly in other places too, but... Of, of nominal Christianity. I'm sure you've heard of nominal Christianity. It just means being a Christian in name only, calling yourself a Christian but not really being one. And, and I think there, there's different versions of it. There's the kind of Roman Catholic version of it. Well, I was baptized and confirmed, and I went to CCD, and so, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? Well, I don't know. And then there's the Protestant version of it. You know, I, I went to VBS as a kid, and then in, at, the, at the Bible camp, they asked us to bow our heads and to pray the prayer to receive Jesus into our hearts. And if you pray that prayer and ask Jesus into your heart, then you're saved and you're a Christian, right? And it's like, well, maybe, you know. But, but you look at your Bible and, and you don't see praying the prayer in the Bible and you don't see going to CCD in the Bible. What you see in the scripture is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so the question is, have I repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, maybe you did it during that altar call at that evangelistic rally. I don't know. Or maybe you're swept along in a, a wave of emotion. The question is, has my life changed to reflect the transformation? That's the evidence. Not what words did I say or what ritual did I do, but has the Spirit begun to change my life? And so, so I think that's even another place to start here is, you know, when it says drawing near the Lord, I mean, have you even started the journey? Have you even taken that first step of repenting of your sins and believing in Christ and by his grace, trusting in him? Are you really a Christian? Let us be able to look at ourselves honestly in, in the hard, cold, hard light of day and to say, God, show me my faults. Show us our faults. Let us not be like the Israelites who had the tragic irony of being just as sinful as the culture around them. All right, let me just really quickly show you the other two tragic ironies, then I'll close. Here's the second tragic irony, is in verse five. The second tragic irony is that God was dwelling amidst this Jerusalem. Verse five, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. God is right there in Jerusalem. I mean, you know, what's in Jerusalem? It's the temple, (laughs) temple is where God's presence dwelt. 
And it was right there among these people who, who had no regard for the law of God and, and they weren't obeying God and they weren't seeking God and all those things we read in verse 2. They, they weren't trusting God and yet every day they would walk by the temple. They, they would do their business and go on their way in the shadow of the temple, the presence of God right there in their midst and, and they're like, yeah, no big deal. Yeah, God, you know. They, they treated God like he was kind of a senile old grandfather in the living room in the lazy boy. And like, oh yeah, it's Gramps. He's, he's kind of it's old. Don't worry about him. Do whatever. I just play whatever. He can't hear the TV anyway. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, that's him. That's how they say, oh, God, he's up in his temple. Yeah, yeah, I know he's there. He, was, you know, he did some stuff a long time ago, but whatever. And, and so they disregarded the fact that the holy God who is righteous, you know, you look at verse 5, just, righteous, never failing, always faithful, that God is right in their midst in the last, verse of, last line of verse 5. The unrighteous know no shame. It's like he's right there watching you and you're acting like all the other nations. You think about today, you know, where's the temple of God today? According to the New Covenant and the New Testament, where's the temple of God today? It's us. It's the church. Every Christian, every true born-again Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we corporately as local congregations are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you want to see God's temple today, go to a local church. Here, this here right in front of me and all around you is, is one manifestation of the temple of God according to the way the New Testament sees it because this is where God dwells through his spirit. And so that's, that's an awesome thing. It's also a scary thing a little bit because it means... God is among us. And, and we can't just say, ah, just be like the world. What's the big deal? God is here. And, and so there's a sense of holiness that ought to pervade us as a church. Not holier than thouness, but holiness. Because God is in our midst. In the New Testament uh, book of Revelation, actually, do this. Put a bookmark here in Zephaniah. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. This is how the book of Revelation describes the fact that God is among us. Revelation chapter 2. The, the, the imagery that the, the Revelation uses is that, is that the churches are like lampstands. That's the symbolism in Revelation. Think of a lamp. A lamp gives off light. It's shining in the darkness. Isn't that what the church and God's people are supposed to be? Shining in the darkness. Shining out the light of the gospel. Shining out the light of God's kingdom. And so there are these lampstands. Seven churches in Revelation. Seven lampstands. And Jesus is portrayed, among other things, as the one who walks among the lampstands. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is walking among his churches, his local congregations. He's the one tending the lamps and putting the oil in them and keeping them going. And, and so Revelation then uh, starts with... Uh, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, seven letters to the seven churches. This is the easier part of Revelation to interpret. And so, uh, and, and here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, is one of those letters to one of those churches. It's the church in Ephesus. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches. I know your deeds. Jesus is right here among us. He knows our deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles that are not and have found them false. You've persevered and 
endured hardship for my name. You've not grown weary. This is a church that's been faithful. False teachers have come in. They sniffed out the false teachers. They sent them packing. They don't tolerate evil in their church. They're pure. They have sound doctrine. They're fighting against sin. And yet he says, verse 4, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Somehow in that battle against sin, in that battle against false teaching, they forgot love. They've stopped loving as a church, loving each other, and maybe even loving the people in their community. Look what he says in verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Rediscover that love. If you do not repent, get this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Whoa! (laughs) You know, can real, true, born-again, elect Christians lose their salvation? No. But can real churches have their lampstand removed? Apparently, you know? Apparently, the lampstand can be removed. And that's just a sobering passage. Like, wow, this is a doctrinally sound church, but they've lost love. And love is, is, you know, the heart of the gospel. And so he says, I'm about to remove your lampstand. I'm I'm about to bring judgment upon that local congregation. And as I was studying this, I just was wondering, if Jesus were to write an eighth letter and he were to send it to South Shore Baptist Church, I wonder what it would say. I don't know, actually, because it's hard to know your own faults, isn't it? (laughs) I could probably tell you what he'd write to some other churches. Maybe I should ask them (laughs) what he would say about our church. I wonder what he'd write. I, I bet there'd be a lot of good things Jesus would say about our church, just like he does in these other ones. You're doing this good. Keep that up. Keep that up. Keep that up. But in every one of these other churches, except the ones that were being severely persecuted, he also had a few like, and you better hmm, deal with this and deal with that. I wonder what the Lord Jesus would write to us. And I said, I'm not quite sure. Maybe I have some ideas, but I'm not sure. Because it's hard to know your own faults, isn't it? It's really hard to see your weaknesses, especially when you have some good strengths. You're like, ah, look at that. No, don't forget, that's not so big, but look at that, look at that. And that's, that's how we are. The Lord is among us. Let us take his word seriously. Let's not be complacent and dismissive of God's word. All right, go back to Zephaniah, last point. The last tragic irony. And then I'll be done here. The first tragic irony is that they look just like all the other nations. They look just like all the other wicked people around them. There was no difference when you got to Judah. They didn't stand out as the holy people of God. Number two, second irony, God was within their midst. God was in their midst. And then the third irony is in verses six and seven. And basically the irony is this, that the people of Jerusalem were rejoicing when God judged other nations rather than taking warning when God judged other nations. You got that? They were celebrating and gloating when God brought judgment on others rather than taking warning from it and saying, oh, God is holy. Let's remember to repent because he's still a holy God. You know, look at verses six and seven. I've cut off nations. Their strongholds are demolished. 
I've left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left. No one at all. Okay, I've done all these judgments. And I said to the city, now he's speaking to Jerusalem, surely you'll fear me and accept correction. Clearly you're going to see what I've done to others and you're going to say, woo, God is holy, let's obey. But instead, you know, they didn't. Then their dwelling would not be cut off nor their punishments come upon her, but they were still eager to act corruptly in all that they did. There's a danger here of, of seeing, again, seeing God's judgment on others and saying, yeah, they deserved it because I can see their faults, but not seeing it upon yourself. And, and someday God will bring us to account. And so this is really a call to repent today and to say, God, search my heart. I don't even know what my faults are, God. That's one of my faults is I can't even see my faults. So help me see my faults, Lord. I just want you to purify me. I want you to make me a holy, godly man. I can't do it. I need your spirit and your power to transform me. That's the kind of prayer we need to be praying. That's the prayer of repentance and, and of revival, actually. Revival. Don't make the mistake when you see bad people punished of gloating and stopping right there. I mean, yeah, it's good when evil is punished. We should be happy when evil is punished. But don't just stop there and say, "Woo, they got it, got what was coming to them. Stop and say, Lord, you know, have mercy on me too. You know, a couple months ago, we had the marathon bombings and it was such a roller coaster. I just felt exhausted that week. You know, there was the bombings and they were so awful and terrible and we we're all in shock and then you know we're just starting to recover and a few days later they, they you find out those those two um, terrorists were um you know they, they popped up again and then they carjacked a guy and there was a shootout and one of them got killed and then the other one kept running you know and then there was the manhunt we were we watched tv for like 24 hours straight you know it was like reality tv this is you know Jack Bauer 24. It's like, I can't believe this is happening real time right here in the city. And you're glued to the TV. And finally, late that night, it was a Friday, I forget, they finally find the guy hiding in the boat. You know, and they catch the guy and they haul him out. And then it's like, yes! You know, it goes from like weeping to rejoicing. And people are high-fiving the cops in the streets. I mean, it was just, it was so amazing. And, And I think one of the things that was so enthralling about it was is you actually saw justice. You know, you actually saw a bad person do a terrible, horrible thing, get caught and brought out in the public. And the good guys seemed to have won. And it was like, finally, justice, you know? And it's a good thing to see justice done. Justice is good. But, but here's again the danger, is to look at that scene and be like, yeah, they finally caught that dirtbag. But not to also think you know, someday God's going to catch all of us and we're not going to be able to hide in the boat. God is on the judgment day. He's going to find every one of us. Yeah, I'm, I'm a terrorist. I haven't done something awful like blow people up, but I've been living in rebellion against God. I need to repent too. I'm not going to escape either, you know? So, so don't just stop it. Yeah, Boston Strong, we're awesome. You've got to be like, God is just and holy. I need to repent. And seek the Lord. We often pray for revival. I know many of you are praying for revival on the South Shore of Boston. I'm praying for revival on the South Shore of Boston. 
There are groups of people in our church praying for revival on the South Shore of Boston. We're praying that God's word would come to those people out there and that they would repent and really seek the Lord out there and come to know Jesus out there, right? But where does revival start? Revival has to start right here. Revival has to start with us saying, oh Lord, search us. Jesus, write your letter to us. Bring us back in alignment with you. We want to be your people. And so may revival begin with the household of God before it goes to the nations. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we... We thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for the cross. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would show us our faults. Lord, we don't want to look at that. We don't want to talk about that. But Lord, we need to see it. We need you to show us our faults. Show us our motives. Our hearts are so deceptive, we deceive ourselves. Lord, show us. And Lord, may we be quick, quick to repent, quick to come back to you. We thank you, Lord, that you love humble people who call upon you. And so, Lord, help us to be a humble people who are quick to repent. May revival come first to the household of God. May it come to the people of faith. May we be a revived people. Then, Lord, may that spill out over out of the church doors and into the streets. And, Lord, we pray that for other churches here on the South Shore. May revival come there, and may it begin with the people of God taking seriously their call to walk with Jesus and to obey him and to draw close to him. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray. Send reviving winds. We're so encouraged, Lord, that during Zephaniah's day, there was a great revival. The King Josiah repented and led the nation in repentance, and there was a great revival. And so, Lord, we pray that the the message of Zephaniah might spark a similar revival in our day, starting with the household of God. Lord, come and deal with your people mercifully, but deal with us nonetheless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.